Matthew 27, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 26 through verse 32. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse, beginning at verse 26, uh, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And we'll end our reading there. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, this holy word. O oh, gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you again for the great gift that you've given to us in your word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this very difficult passage that's even hard to read, we pray, Father, that your spirit would truly Give us understanding that we might fully see what is happening here to our Lord and what happened to Him. And we pray, Father, that You would truly so bless Your Word that as it goes forth, that it would reach down into our hearts where we trust it would find that rich, fertile soil that would bear great and abundant fruit for Your glory. Bless Your Word to us, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> in every age, mankind makes advancements in, in knowledge and uh, knowledge of the created world that, of course, lead to, to much progress in things like medicine and agricultural and technology and, and especially the overall standard of living or the quality of life. And of course, the more advancements are made, the more that we tend to think that we've become more sophisticated and civilized than the generation that has come before us. And though there may be some truth to this, it never fails that also in every age there are numerous glaring examples of a great lack of sophistication and civilization. That is, there's no shortage, and even in our own day, of displays of, of man's inhumanity against man. Shocking things that make man appear as a beast rather than a creature created in the image of God. But of course now, the whole world is able to see these atrocities even in real time. 
Well, Chris, at the root of all this is the unchanging, sinful human heart. Despite all the various advancements and improvements on quality of life, when it comes down to it, mankind is still born as sinful as every other previous generation since Adam. Societal progress doesn't heal the sinful human heart. But the gospel surely does. And this is the gospel. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came in the flesh. He suffered and He endured all the pain and the misery of this life, and yet He never sinned perfectly, keeping the law of God. And so He was then enabled to be a perfect righteous sacrifice for sins. And when He submitted Himself to the Father's will, and He endured the painful and shameful death on the cross, He was that perfect sacrifice. But we know that death did not hold Him as He rose again in victory on the third day to secure salvation for undeserving sinners even like you and me. To bring healing to the curse of the sinful human heart. Truly because of what Jesus accomplished in the Gospel, we can say with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse 3, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. And though the healing that we receive through this good news is a true spiritual healing, the stripes, the stripes that Jesus received were actual painful physical afflictions which He endured for us. And this is what we see in our passage this morning. Where under what was one of the most advanced and civilized cultures of the time, the baseness of man's sinful heart is on full display. As Jesus our Lord and Savior is brutally tortured and humiliated, even before He gets to the cross, which was a horror all its own. Well, the two things that we want to remember as we consider this account is first, that Jesus endured this. Not because of something that He did wrong, not for His own sin, but He endured this for us, on our behalf, in our place, because of our sin. He endured what only we deserved. And the second thing we need to remember is this. Because Christ endured the things that we... uh, Because He endured these things, we do have available to us true healing from sin. And we also have the continued comfort of His grace as we endure through the trials and the afflictions of this life, knowing that there's nothing that we will endure that Christ, our precious Savior, hasn't endured Himself. 
Well, after Jesus' trial before Pilate, before he is sent away to be crucified, Pilate consents and perhaps even oversees the scourging of Jesus. Now, scourging was likely this, this pre-execution punishment for all those who were condemned to death. In other words, Jesus was not receiving any special treatment here. And really, it's yet another crime that we can lay at, at Pilate's feet, another sin. He's already knowingly condemned an innocent man to death, and now he unjustly inflicts cruel punishment on this innocent man's body. And it was brutal, so brutal, that many didn't survive the scourging, dying before they even made it to the execution. We find descriptions of the Roman scourge from the early Jewish historian Josephus. A scourge, and what they used was, was like a whip. And, and at one end, uh, there was a, a short wooden handle. And then from that handle uh, were these uh, long leather straps. And at the end of those straps, uh, they placed small pieces of lead or brass or even uh, pieces of, of sharp uh, broken bone. And then they would have uh, the subjects, would, uh, they would have their back exposed and there'd be two men, one on each each side, each having their own their own whip, and they would alternate taking turns, whipping that scourge across the back. This would lead to a tearing away of the skin, and eventually, even the underlying flesh, as as deep seated veins and arteries and entrails, and even sometimes inner organs would become exposed. And we know for the Jews, the law of Moses limited the number of lashings to forty, which they often placed a hedge around and would stop at thirty nine in case they they miscounted. But of course, the Jews didn't use these flesh tearing scourges that the Romans did. They just use regular leather straps. So we don't know how many lashes Jesus received. Friends, if you think about it, even a few, even a few of these lashes and scourges would be terribly painful. And the Romans knew this. Which is why Roman citizens were exempt from the scourge. Indeed, with all their advances and civilization, the Romans were cruel and beastly toward those whom they had conquered. In fact, it was their cruelty that really instilled great fear and kept the empire intact. It was one of the things that kept the empire intact for so long because people feared the cruelty of the Romans. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, the very Son of God, come in the flesh, to save sinners like you and me, and even to save many of these Romans. This precious, perfectly righteous Jesus was subjected to this cruel brutality. As if His unjust condemnation to death wasn't enough. This intensely painful scourging Jesus endured on our behalf. All so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. So that we might have peace and reconciliation with God. 
It was by these very real, painful, flesh-torn stripes that we're healed from our sin. And we're healed and preserved and protected from the just wrath and curse that our sin deserves. And all this, Jesus endured at the consent of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who, remember, he foolishly thought that he could escape the guilt of his sin by simply washing his hands with soap and water. We wonder how, how Pilate could have overseen something like this. It's, it's hard to imagine, especially when he knew that Jesus was innocent. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, take him away out of my sight and put him to death. But to them charge that he be scourged. Even this shows that someone like Pilate, who, of course, has the appearance of being you know, a, a ruler and, and having some sense of, of civility. And even, we mentioned last time, uh, maybe a, a sense of, of justice, right? Because it, it took him, he, he really didn't want to put Jesus to death. But he caved to the pressure, the fear of man. Well, even Pilate can escape the depths of depravity which flow out of the human, the sinful human heart. Well, after this brutal scourging, they take Jesus away away from Pilate's court and away from his eyes. The soldiers take Jesus to the praetorium, which would be the, the, the guard house or the quarters of the Roman soldiers. And again, as if the abuse and the humiliation that he's already received, received wasn't enough, there was now more to come from these Roman soldiers who were trained in cruelty. At this time, of course, there was no Geneva Convention rules about prisoner treatment. Not that they would have been followed uh, even if there was. But what you did have was a group of mostly probably unhappy, underpaid Roman soldiers who would welcome a diversion from the tense environment in Jerusalem, which would be very typical during a festival time when you had tens of thousands of extra, uh, of the extra independence-minded Jews filling the city. And, and the, the, the thought of a, of a rebellion or a riot was, was always there. And that'd be great intense. Well, here's a, here's a diversion. Let's take it out on this man who's condemned to die. We're told that the whole garrison gathered around him in verse 27. And typical, uh, a typical garrison or cohort was about 600 soldiers. But it's not likely that there were uh, 600. It probably was just a battalion of soldiers who were just assigned to that particular area of the city. But of course, compared to just one Jesus, there was a large crowd of men about to unleash cruelty on the Son of God. Once again, Jesus would be surrounded by wicked men who dropped to the basis level to attack him as if they were wild beasts. In fact, though Matthew makes no quotation or even allusion here, we see that even this was in fulfillment of the scriptures. 
especially as prophesied, as we mentioned, through David's own experience that he records in the Psalms. Right again, all those Psalms that we've sung so far this morning are ultimately the words of Jesus. David being a type of Jesus. Jesus being the very word of God. These are ultimately the words of Jesus that, as he endures this time of terror and abuse. And again, Psalm 129 spoke of many afflicting him and the pharaohs that they made upon his back, which came from the scourging. In Psalm 118, Jesus likens those who surrounded him to, to a swarm of bees. In Psalm 22, a psalm, again, that we know closely reflects the heart and mind of our Savior during His suffering and humiliation because He, he quotes it from the cross. In Psalm 22, we find our Savior speaking of the beastly nature of His enemies. They're raging bulls, they're roaring lions and wild dogs ready to assault Him in His weakness before they pierce Him. These images are all terrifying. As we try to imagine what Jesus was thinking and feeling, we catch a glimpse in another psalm. Psalm 17. In verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Being surrounded by these wild beasts of men, Jesus keeps his hope and his focus on his heavenly Father. Reminding the Father not to forget Him, but to keep Him as the apple of His eye. Despite all that He'll now endure. And what He'll now endure is more humiliation added to what He's already experienced. In verse 28, they stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him. Scarlet or uh, some shade close to purple as Matt, Mark has it in his account. Scarlet was, a, was a, uh, often worn by royalty. Right? It was a royal color. And here the robe that they placed on Jesus was probably one of the mantles or the robes that were worn by the military officers. And since the Jews charged Jesus before Pilate with being a king and thus a rival to Caesar... Well, the soldiers have their way with this supposed king, mocking him, dressing up as if he were a ragdoll, dressing him up to look like a king. In verse 29, they add to the royal ensemble by making a crown of thorns and and placing it on his head, because every king needs a crown. It was common at the time for a wreath of greens to be placed on on the head of of royalty, and you see that on on old uh, Roman coins. And of course, it was also used for those who won in the games. But instead of soft greenery, they gathered dry thorn branches and weave them together, wove them together into a crown and placed it upon his head. And I'm sure they didn't just lightly place it, it was a placing and a pressing upon his head. 
This wasn't only a mockery, but it was a cruel torture as those thorns would be pressed into his scalp, causing blood to begin running down our Savior's face. And of course, what's a king without a scepter to rule with? A staff. And they find a reed or a stick and they they put it in his hand. And look, behold, here is this king of the Jews in all his royal attire. Except he's beaten and bloodied. And as if that weren't enough, humiliation. They take turns coming before him, bowing their knees, mockingly saying to him, Hail, king of the Jews. As if they're paying homage to him. As if he were truly their king. But they did so with, with resentment and mocking in their hearts. And it gets worse. In verse 30, Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now this is the second time in the last couple of hours that Jesus has been spat upon. I don't know if anyone has ever spat upon you. I've had that unfortunate experience. It's not pleasant. It's a sign of contempt and disgust. Previously, it was the chief priests and the elders. Remember, they were also civilized. And yet here, they were like a bunch of wild beasts surrounding our Savior. But now it's these vicious Roman soldiers spitting upon him. And then they take the reed, right? His, his scepter and he, from his hand. And of course, that would be, if you're a king, you've got your scepter. Someone takes your scepter out of your hand. Well, that's pretty humiliating. They're stealing your power and your authority, at least symbolically. But then they're not uh, pleased with just taking it away. They then use it as a rod and they begin beating him on the head with it. And of course we know that with each blow of that rod upon his head, it would press that crown of thorns even deeper into his skull, into, into his scalp. Not only bloody, but again, extremely painful. And so surely the words of the Psalms that we considered are accurate. These are vicious beasts, roaring lions, gnashing their teeth and wild dogs, growling at Jesus, surrounding Him, and one by one taking their turn to inflict Him and to humiliate Him. Beloved of God, Jesus endured this vicious mob for you. So your sins could be forgiven. So you could escape condemnation and judgment. Well, then suddenly in verse 31, their mocking and abuse ceased, well, at least, for, at least for now, because it's time to go. It's time to take Jesus to be crucified. But note again here that they take the robe off him and put his own clothes back on him. And there's two things I want to note about this. First, Again, to add to his humiliation, Jesus had been stripped of his clothes this whole time. Right? With the robe being his only covering. A shameful humiliation that would soon be repeated when he was there hanging on the cross. But secondly, 
Remember those those deep furrows, those deep wounds, the open and bloody wounds on his back from the scourging. Right? All these changes of, of clothes, right? They had his back bare, then they put his clothes back on after the scourging. Then they take his clothes off again and they put this robe on. And then they take the robe off again and put his clothes back on. And again, once he gets to the cross, they'll take those clothes off once again. But with each change of clothes, the cloth of those garments would, would stick to those open wounds. And so each time they took, them, took something off, it would irritate and tear at those open wounds, causing even more pain and suffering for our Savior. We truly can't even begin to imagine what Jesus endured. And again, the worst worst was was yet to come. But in the midst of all this abuse and humiliation, at the hands of the Roman soldiers, there's an interesting... An interesting twist, a truthful reality that, that's actually been expressed. Now earlier, the, the Jewish religious leaders had asked Jesus if he was the Christ. And remember, Jesus said, yes. It was the only answer that he gave. He, he was indeed the Messiah. It was the truth. But then they charged him with blasphemy because he noted that since he was the Messiah, well, he was then the promised Holy One of God who would come to judge them and judge the entire earth at the end of the age, identifying himself with God. And so they charged him with blasphemy. And later, Pilate asked Jesus whether he was the King of the Jews, and Jesus rightly said, yes, he was, and it was the truth. But Pilate didn't believe him, or at least he didn't take it seriously. And yet he still condemned this righteous man to death. Well, now the soldiers mockingly pay homage to him as a king. And this is true. Because he is a king. And one day, on the last great day, these same soldiers will gather around him once again. And they will pay homage to him. But at that time, there will be no laughter or mocking on their lips because their lips will be quivering with fear. For at that time, the king whom they now mock will come in power and glory, wearing a holy and righteous robe, shining as bright as the day. He will come wearing a crown of gold, a a crown of glory and honor, because he will be the victor. He will also hold a righteous scepter in His hand, which He will use to rule and to judge all the nations of the earth. And at that time, He'll receive true honor and worship, which is rightly due His holy name. And again, even these ones who've mocked and abused Him, they will, along with Pilate and the religious leaders and all and Judas and and Barabbas and whoever else, they all will be compelled on that great day 
to give him this true honor. As Paul explains in Philippians 2, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will be compelled to rightly give Him this honor and praise and worship. And that day will surely come. But first, first, Jesus must be rejected as a king. Just as during Samuel's time when the Israelites rejected God as their king and they wanted a king like the other nations, now they have rejected the very Son of God as their Messiah and King. And seeing how His own people have rejected Him, well then of course that's nothing for these Roman soldiers to also reject and mock Him. Before He returns on that glorious day, He must first show Himself to be a humbled and humiliated servant before He rises in glory to ascend His throne seated at the right hand of God. His royal robe must first be dipped in blood as we see in in Revelation 19. And he, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and His name is called the Word of God. His crown must first be a crown of thorns. And interesting enough here, showing the evidence of the curse God placed on creation because of Adam's sin back in Genesis 3.18 when thorns and thistles were brought forth from the earth. Well, this curse here is, is fittingly being placed upon the head of the one who will come to redeem all creation. But before He comes to redeem all creation, He must first wear this crown of thorns. He must first be beaten with the scepter of men, a a scepter of cruelty, wickedness, and sin before He receives the scepter of all authority and power over heaven and earth. He must first be spat upon and made a foolish spectacle before He receives the praise and honor of all on that last great day. Beloved of God, Jesus must first endure all these things before He can reign. He must accomplish His Father's will. He must first bring forth healing for His people, even for us. And this is what we now see a a glimpse of in the final verse here, a glimpse of hope and healing yet to come. Verse 32, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. So as they were leading Jesus out of the city to be crucified, he was obviously uh, wearied by all that he had endured, and and he was unable to carry the cross as was customary. And again, even that in itself was, was unusual cruelty. Right, that the condemned was made to carry the very instrument that was going to be used to put them to death. It'd be, you know, like imagine a criminal today being having to carry their own electric chair, They're carrying their own 
uh, ammunition to, that was going to be used or their own sh- chemicals that were going to be injected into them. But Jesus was unable to carry this cross. And so the Romans press into service a man returning to the city from the country, this Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was, was on the North African coast, and, uh, which is now modern-day Libya. And there was a large Jewish settlement in Cyrene, and Simon was, was likely one of those Jews who had come to the city, uh, to Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover. Well, suddenly, as he's minding his own business, he's entering the city, and he sees there's a great commotion. Someone is, is being led away to be crucified, which was a common, would have been perhaps common sight in the city. And all those filling the streets would, would clear a path for the condemned who was being led by the soldiers. Well, then suddenly this condemned man falls to the ground, right in front of Simon. When the soldiers turns and looks around over the crowd and he, and he reaches out and he just grabs a random person. This Simon of Cyrene. And says, here, you, you need to carry this cross for this man. And he compels him to the carry the cross for this condemned man. You know, all Simon probably wanted to do was just to go to the temple and worship. And now suddenly he's forced into carrying this heavy cross for this poor, beaten, and bloodied man walking behind him. Now, some might call this bad timing, but it was indeed actually perfect timing. Not only for Jesus to have someone there to, to help him, but especially for Simon and for his wife and for his family. Well, how can this be? Well, first we have to ask ourselves, how did Matthew know Simon's name? Right? How did he know Simon's name? All the disciples had scattered. They were, they were hiding out somewhere. There was no one to, to interview this guy. He was just a, a random guy pulled out of the crowd. The soldiers didn't even know who he was. They certainly didn't, probably didn't ask his name. See if he was qualified. You. Carry this cross. So how do we know his name? Well, Mark, in his gospel accounts, even gives us a little bit more, in his gospel account, gives us a little bit more information. Mark 15, 21, he tells us that Simon, a Cyrenian, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, again, we have to ask, how did Mark know this information? How many Simons, Alexanders, and and Rufuses would there have been? Perhaps many. But as you read the Gospel accounts, Matthew, really the names appearing in the Gospel accounts are very few. Think about all the people that Jesus healed, and occasionally there's one that we have the name. But Matthew, and especially perhaps Mark, as as you would look at Mark's account, they're writing these names as though their audiences would know exactly who they're referring to. Right? This is this was Simon. The, you know, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know that. It's commonly accepted that Mark wrote his gospel account to Christians who are in Rome. And again, he writes as if Alexander and Rufus were known to those Christians in Rome. And guess what? They were. The Apostle Paul, one of those 
areas of Paul's letter that we might quickly pass over because, oh, it's just a bunch of names. They're there for a purpose, friends. As Paul closes out his letter to the Romans, right, he's greeting all these saints and he's listing out all these names. Well, in Romans 16, verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother in mine. Now, again, it could have been a different Rufus. But it's certainly commonly accepted that that's the connection. That's how they knew these names. It seems as though Rufus and Alexander and even their mother, along with Simon, had become Christians. And it's quite possible that it was from this very experience that Simon of Cyrene had being randomly pulled from the crowd by the Roman soldiers, except it wasn't random at all. It was a divine appointment to lead Simon, his wife, and their sons to believe in Jesus Christ. And so then we see a glimmer of hope and future glory is found in the midst of this violent and graphic account of the Son of God being abused and mocked. During this time of of great humiliation, there's already evidence of what He has come to do and will soon accomplish on the cross by His death. The stripes that He received were already bringing about healing. Healing from sin and condemnation. Seeds of hope are already being sown. Salvation has already begun to take effect so that Jesus will not have suffered and died in vain. But remember, brothers and sisters, this healing was not just for Simon and his family. It's also for you and for all who trust in Christ for salvation. Indeed, as we consider all that Christ Jesus endured for us, the scourging, the, the mocking, the humiliation, the pain, and ultimately death, and of course, all that's even come before that. As we consider these things, we ought to, to be greatly humbled. Even as we, see, we, as we see all the things that our sin, what our sin did to our Savior, But again, this is just the beginning. And it gets much, much worse, as we'll see. It gets worse. But you know what? It also gets better, much better. Because through the suffering of Christ, we have this salvation. We have forgiveness. And we have the assurance and the promise of the blessed hope of reigning with Him if we believe on Christ alone for salvation. The Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we have, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. 
For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, the gospel calls you to no longer stray like sheep, but to return even now to the good shepherd and guardian of your souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Be healed from sin by His stripes, the very stripes that He endured. And commit your life from this time and forevermore to live to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You. Because though this is a, a difficult passage to read and to consider all that, that our precious Savior endured on our behalf, knowing that this is what we deserve, this is, this is what our sin did for Him, did to Him. We are greatly humbled in Your presence. Because we acknowledge we are not worthy. Which is why we need your grace. And we cling to your grace. We give thanks to you for your grace and your mercy that you pour out upon us. Upon undeserving sinners in great abundance. We deserve what Christ endured. And yet instead we have been given new and everlasting life and eternal hope in Christ Jesus the forgiveness of sins peace and reconciliation with you it's hard for us to imagine all these things but Lord we are compelled to give praise and thanks to your name for this great and awesome salvation and may we never ever take it for granted but that we would truly be challenged to truly live every day committed to serving you and seeking to glorify your name that we might be reminded of what Christ endured for us whenever we're tempted to sin whenever we're, we're toying with that temptation may we be reminded of these very things the stripes that he endured so that we may be healed. And so we pray for your grace to be poured out upon us. That you would draw us all closer to yourselves. That we might truly lift up your name in praise and glory and thanksgiving for what you have accomplished for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. May your spirit truly bless us in these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.